So if you want to be rich, do what rich people do. Invest in yourself and invest in a business and invest in real estate. What we're talking about is the infinite banking strategy. Everyone's like, oh, it sounds like you just keep re-leveraging yourself. Well, that's what you're doing in real estate. You're basically borrowing your next down payment from your current property. Go out and reinvest that money and make money off of that. While your original cash is also making money. And this is what finally got me excited about like insurance. There's $100,000 in there. It keeps growing while you just borrowed $90,000. It's like, oh, that's pretty damn cool. When I was broke, I had rich habits, uh. When I was broke, I had rich habits, uh. All right. Welcome to the Master Keys Podcast. Yeah, we don't know what episode this is. It could be episode three. It could be yeah. episode five. We have a guest uh, on this week's episode that we're super excited about. Um, that's Darren Mitchell and Christina Wyatt. Um, they're from oh. Control and Compound. Yeah, so uh, which is both a financial advisory, you know, financial guidance company, but they also run the podcast Control and Compound also at here uh, at BNV Studios. So we're going to switch to that interview in the second part of this episode. Um, but first, we're going to start with a, a few different things just to kind of catch you up on what's going on in the news. Uh, we got our key player of the week. We got some Q&A questions you guys asked us. We're going to respond to those right now as well. Neil, but what's first, shaking, man? we have to go over our five new subscribers. Yes. So we'll say them real quick. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Jesse Rios. Thank you, Gumby One. Thank you, Vikas Ravendra. Yep. Thank you, Kawashkik Roy. Yep. And I'm butchering these so bad. Last but not least, Carrie Ottaway. And I think Ottaway. there's a couple others after that. Let's keep it going. No, <laughs> I'm not reading the rest of those. Okay. They're too hard to pronounce. All right. Um, but, uh, yes, thanks for subscribing, guys. Um, the first thing I want to get into right off the hop, Chandler, is you called me as we were driving here, and we're like, market's picking up. Everything's going really good. Things are ticking. I, I want to talk about it. And then I said, ah. And he was like, I don't know. And then I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I'll tell you on the pod. So <laughs> this... Um, when Explain your feeling. You got a feeling. So, no disrespect. I'm out here in these streets a little bit more than you need. <laughs> okay? Guy slows down on the real estate sales. He's coming at me already. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I probably... Listen, we're a few weeks into January. Actually, when this episode airs, we'll be through January. We'll be into February. And that first couple weeks of January were, how would you describe it? Dead. Like Dead. Death. Okay. Um, and we're coming out of November and December that were also very slow, which is part of why January felt slow. Um, and always when the year starts, a few things happen. One, the buyers are ready before the sellers. Because buyers show up there January 1, they're like, alright, let's go, man. New Year's resolution, I got some money for Christmas, I'm ready to go. But the sellers are not. You know, the sellers are coming out of the doldrums of the holidays. They're thinking about uh, how the home looks better in the spring, et cetera, et cetera. So immediately... Two calendar switches over. Yeah, yeah. A few weeks into January, we started to see that the buyers were there and the listings were not. Yeah, okay. Simple supply and demand. A couple listings came on, and it was still feeling out, like, what's the response going to be? What's the response going to be? And, man, I probably attempted to book around 15 showings or so in the last seven days. Maybe a bit more. Okay. okay. Um, What's your norm outside of this? Um, in a week, I'll probably do not much more than that, like 20, 20 to 25. During the height of the busyness? Yeah, because we're still low inventory then too, right? True, okay. That's, right. that's, so usually I'd say you know, 25 that, and right now you're doing 15. Yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. Um, but no, no, I wasn't doing 15 because I attempted to book them. And of those 15, probably... Six or seven were already sold before I could book the showings on them. Of the properties I did successfully show, uh, we were in multiple offers in a property on Spryfield, uh, which we got. 
We were on multiple offers on a property in Dartmouth, which we didn't get. There was actually, so there was three on the one in, in Spryfield. There were nine offers on the one in Dartmouth. Then there's another one in Dartmouth that we are one of six offers. And then I was in one last night, uh, kind of out past uh, Elmsdale area, and there were six offers on that. Oh, where I live. Um, yeah, yeah, way out there. No reception where <laughs> Neil lives. Um, and I'm trying to think, and there was one other. So these are, are probably we competition and we didn't multiple know offers, multiple offers, multiple offers on a lot of these things if the homes are still available. So that is enough of a sample size um, that I can already tell there's some momentum that's going on in the market right now. Let's hear it, Squinty. Um, Squinting over here at me. So, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. There's definitely a little, little bit of a pickup. But I feel like it's a blip. How many showings did you have last week, Neil? Uh, one. Yeah. So who's out here in these streets we, that knows what's going on with the, the market? Preface that I've stopped selling real estate. If you, <laughs> it's your first time listening to the pod. We have a team now, and Neil doesn't really sell real estate unless it's a commercial property. But I've got I got a lot of messages last week, and I can tell that a lot of the group chats are picking up. Um, and so I, I'm seeing that, and I, I can see like the stats, and I can see what's going on in the office, and then I'm listening to you. Um. So I believe that there, there's that uptick, but I believe it's like a, a blip. You think that's just because of the, the sheer low of inventory? I think it's sheer low inventory. Then I also think it's like the week after New Year's is just fuzz. A lot of people are still on vacation. The week after that is literally still fuzz because people are starting to get into the routine, get back at it. Weather kind of sucks, like all those things. And then I think at this point now, this third week, like that mid-second week and the start of this third week, people are all fired up because now they're back into the routine. They're bored at work, doing whatever they're going to do. Or they had their New Year's resolution. You guys, Some of you guys heard mine. That was to buy a property in the States. I have now started shopping in the States. And so I think all these people may have come out with a New Year's resolution to be like, this is the year I get myself a house, or this is the year I get a rental property, or this is the year that I get my yeah. next rental property. And so everyone's coming out fired up. And so we're right at that point. But I do think like we have another rate hike coming at the end of the month. Or yep. by the time this is out, we probably have had that rate yeah, hike. Yeah, probably another twenty-five points. We'll see in hindsight. But yeah. yeah, and again, it's like that same concept that we've talked about a hundred times, where everything is like a delayed response. And so we've had the hikes now for maybe six months. Is kind of where it started. Seven, eight months, maybe. Yeah. So it's like we're just at the More peak that, of it. Yeah. Like in another six months is when we're really going to start to feel the pain. Um, so I feel like there's more pain to come, right? Like I feel like every Everyone's kind of probably seen the charts somewhere, whether it's on YouTube, Instagram, the news, everywhere. There's something being talked about how the market's going to zero. And I don't think it's going to zero, especially not in Canada and especially not in Atlantic Canada. But I do think that, like, there's a little curve that comes down and then there's always a little blip. It starts to go back up and then it falls off. Like, it never just curves over the highest price point and then goes straight you're down. You're talking about the real estate market or you're talking about real estate market? market. Yeah. And it, it, I don't think it, it's never just a smooth descent, similar to how it's never a smooth ascent. It's never a smooth descent, and I think like this is just a small blip. But what what I don't think it's an indication that now the market's back off to the races. And I know inventory. I'm not low. saying back off to the races, but I'm saying um, it, it's not quiet anymore, right? Like if there were for well-priced properties. If if I had if there were more properties on the market right now, I probably would have four deals that I could do in the next week, right? Like I, I've got buyers ready yeah. to go, ready to pull the trigger. And part of the the what's going on because we were saying that. Yes, the buyers come. They're ready to go early in, in January. There's no, um, you know, it takes a while for the sellers to come on. But a lot of these buyers, if you take first-time buyers, 
they don't have the frame of reference of the two and a half, three percent interest rate anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? There are some buyers that in the fall of last year were like, "Man, I can't believe the rate now because I used to have a rate hold at this, or my friend who just bought had that rate." Blah 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 blah. <clears throat> These are new buyers who they're going in. They're saying, "What's the best rate available?" Which right now is low fives. Right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe four nine nine, but but most maybe likely low, low fives, fives probably. Yeah. And they're like, "Cool. How much money does that get me? Gets me that amount? All right, let's go shop." They're so you not think having just this that like, many buyers, and it's still such an inventory crisis. It's just going to persist through. Like I, I'm not saying to the degree <clears> that it was at all, but I'm saying it is not. Um, like last week, you know, I was supposed to have a showing, but the same thing actually happened. I went to go book it, and they had three offers. Yeah, and also the other one, I went to go show you, and I actually were competing in offers. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, you take this sample size, and it's not huge, and and early in the year here, all of the data is a little bit skewed. Um, <clears throat> but between the two of us and what we're seeing out there, that's something. Yeah, right. I, I, my thing is, I guess out, outside of here, I, I just foresee there to be more pain. Outside American of the market, yeah. I'm expecting a ton of pain. Um, I was talking to somebody actually about like Costa Rican real estate, and they said there's a ton of pain there. Um, Ooh, La Pura so, Vida. We haven't talked about Costa Rica in a little while. You know, Costa Rica is my favorite. Yeah, we got to do know. it. This is the year. I know. This is. We're gonna so shoot an episode down there this year. We are. Start. I'm actually. I was booking something right before I came here. I'll talk to you after. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I don't know. My, my thing is, I just think there's gonna be like at least some stale pricing for a bit. Um, this might be a little bump, but it might be an opportunity to sell. And I, I don't think it's a bad time to buy either. But I just see like I still see like aggressive price drops on overpriced real estate. And some people like things going stale, and they just never marketed it properly from the start, and so they're selling under value. Um, yeah. But I do agree with you that some stuff is still going nuts. Like, I just don't see it like going up. I'm not. I guess my thing is I, I can't see it going up from here because we haven't felt the pain yet from the rates. Okay. Um, On everything I mean, outside of real estate, that's going to ultimately impact real estate. Like when you think about like yeah. where, where, no, no, where I hear money going to come from. I, I hear what you're saying, and I think they're also all the cash out now. This is like you know the economic policy, like they're. The idea for them, so they injected all this money in during COVID, pushed everything up, inflated everything up. Now rates are one way of reducing the spending and pulling money back. But they're also like CRA is like increasing their task force immensely to try and pull back and reclaim a bunch of falsely claimed money during COVID. Uh, they're being really aggressive with people who owe taxes to cap- recapture their taxes. The government's doing everything they can to pull money back in. And that's even why you're seeing tax yeah. hikes across the board because it's all in an effort to get bring down that monetary supply again to a normal level. And not a ton of people are talking about it, but monetary supply is shrinking rapidly, which I think that's ultimately, you're going to start to feel it where people are just like, hey, I just don't have that much cash available anymore. Yeah, yeah, no. Like, where'd I, it go? I, I agree with you. Um, I, feel like I think there are, leaner, there are leaner times. Um, I'm just saying, at least in this moment, um, the the consumer confidence that was the lowest it's probably been in three years in Q4 of last year. Yeah. It's back. Like none of these buyers are boohooing about their rate or anything like that. They're That's out there true. to buy. Um, now, the other thing I will acknowledge is that that is more at the lower end of the price point, which in our market here is sub 500. Yeah. Right. Because more people are being pushed down to that price point because of these rates. So there, there's more buying pressure at that point. But that's what's going on super hyper locally here. Um, you've got another cool story that I, I wanted to Yeah, hear I mean, cool or like kind of scary, I guess, depends how you look at it. But um, scary can be it's been cool. sent to us a few times by one of our team members, Angela. Um, shout out for Angela. But um, I've also seen it at a bunch of other places. And this is where homes effectively are being sold out from under <laughs> an owner's yeah. nose yeah. without them knowing. Yeah. So you imagine just showing up to your property and there's like a family living in it and you're like, Wait a second, what? And you were either out of country or as an investment property or 
secondary or whatever it was and now it's been sold and you go and talk to them and like oh are you guys squatting in my house and they're like no no we paid a million dollars for this home this is our home now it's on title and you're like what the hell yeah. um and so what's going on they've there's a private investigation firm looking into it in toronto but it's estimated that 30-ish homes have either been sold or remortgaged um without the actual owners knowing Wow. And so the way that they're doing this is it's identity theft of the original owner because you can look up whoever owns yeah, it. Yeah, this is what I was going to say. How did this make it through the process that no lawyer noticed? Well, that's not the right people on title. But it's not that hard, really, when they're you think about it. Like, especially yeah. now with like Zoom calls and everything, they, they, all were, they provide us as a driver's license. Man. So, yeah, so what's happening now is they will find out the name of the owners through whatever online system is available because in Canada it's public. They will then create fake identities for them. They will send in a set of like hired, uh, I'll say hit people that go in for five grand and they will pose as tenants to rent the property if it's available to be rented. Um, they'll rent the property so they have access to it for showings, uh, staging, all that kind of stuff. So they're picking oh, homes that are up for rent. Okay. So they're picking a home that's up for rent. They're Ooh. finding the owner, stealing the identity, paying someone Man. five grand to go pose as tenants and sign a lease. Um, and then they're faking, using the fake identities to then remortgage that said property. Or sell it. Or sell it. And they're immediately mm. taking the cash from those. Like they said, if they list it, the first offer that comes in, boom, they take it. They take the cash um, and they're transferring it out of their bank accounts instantly. Like they're basically setting up bank accounts primarily for this one transaction. Money hits the account, money gets transferred out, closed, gone. Uh, and so they're trying to basically figure this out because they've arrested multiple people. They've been able to find the people who are doing it because there's physical people that are re- writing like these the leases. tenants and stuff like that. But every yeah. time they get them, they're like, oh, you're just somebody that got paid five grand to go rent this place. To go rent this yeah. place. And they said they'd cover your rent, basically, and you had nothing to do with the back-end operation. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's actually fairly clever. But the bigger thing that's coming out of it, obviously, is people are losing their homes and all that. But what we rely on so heavily here is, is title insurance. Every time you buy a property, it's like, oh, it's 180 bucks for title insurance. And a lot of times, you don't necessarily think much about it, and it doesn't mm-hmm. really come up often. Um, but now they're talking about how title insurance either becomes ungodly expensive or just goes away altogether. Oh, it's going to have to go up for sure. Because they, they're basically saying they used to get zero claims effectively. Yeah. So and just now they've gotten hundreds of millions of dollars of claims in the last yeah. few years. Everyone listening to this probably has paid for title insurance at some point in time, but maybe doesn't know exactly what it is. Effectively, title insurance is required by your lender. You either get title insurance or a location certificate. For some reason. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but title insurance is effectively an insurance policy that in the future, if your clean title to the property is contested or proven to not be legitimate, you have an insurance policy. So say you buy a property and then someone comes out of the woodwork and says, well, wait a second, I'm the long lost heir of this <laughs> you know, lineage and that property should be mine. Uh, or someone had a lien registered on the property that you weren't aware of and then you took title thinking it was clean and it turned out not to be clean title. These are the sort of things that title insurance can protect you uh, from. In this particular case, it's preventing you from the fact that like you bought and thought you had clean title, but you didn't because the person who signed off on that title was not the owner of the property. So that's what title insurance is. These are going to be massive claims because they're going to be million-dollar claims. Oh, yeah. In Toronto, every time yeah. it's million They said literally in the last two and a half years, it's been $200 million in claims. Before that, like when they first started doing title insurance, it was literally never a single claim. Yeah. Um, it it kind of makes sense. Like I always thought it, it's fairly archaic in some sense that all we give them is our picture of a driver's license and then you sign a piece of paper and yeah. now you now you own this property now you're able to transfer more what are they gonna around. do like a dna test man this like. is the kind of stuff that lends itself to these online like blockchain based systems yeah, yeah. selling no, real estate 
like having a chip in your arm. I don't know what they're going to do to verify. NFTs over here. This is it. This is where NFTs and all these yeah, the, yeah. The crypto, no. this is where they gain their legitimacy and like this stuff. Until someone like steals these crypto or NFT wallets and then they own all of Toronto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally. And that's the problem that happens with every crypto yeah. thing is then the person who like, the guy who's stealing these, like, he's like, I'm selling all these houses. He's like, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to create a crypto that people think is safer to protect them from me. And yeah. then I'm just going to steal everything yeah. from the crypto. And it happens every single time. But at some point, if the government can start to legislate through technology, I think there'll actually be an opportunity for it to make sense and be a lot safer. So there were a couple of rental scams also going on here that were similar in a lot of ways. The um, So you'd list a property and... and if mm. it was vacant, then um, someone would notice the ad. They would take the pictures and they would run an ad to rent the property, and they would rent it at like a deal. It was almost too good to be true. Yeah. And effectively, they would say, "Hey, you know, in order to be considered for this, like, send us over your application. Oh, we think your application looks good. We'd be willing to meet with you, but before we meet with you, you have to fill it. Like, you have to submit a deposit uh, before we show you the yep. property. And of course, there was no property available for rent. They would just take the deposit. Um, I knew about this because a lot of people would call me like, hey, I'm looking at this property for rent, but I see it's also listed for sale. You're the listing agent. Is it for rent? I'd be like, absolutely not. You know, Don't give that person any money and, and report it. Yeah, um, but that was going on for a while. Then there was another one where someone had gotten access to a couple units somehow. I don't even really know. And they would actually show the unit and you know, sign a lease with someone, collect a deposit, or in some cases, deposit in a first month's rent, and then there would just be like, no, like that unit wouldn't actually be available. You're really um, well versed on these scams. Well, I mean, I am out there in the streets, Neil. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, all right, all right. Anyway, so it's always terrible to hear that stuff come up, but then it, um, you know, leads to hopefully to some new innovations with safety and security when it comes to that stuff. But I, mean, I remember well. seeing those a few times exactly where they have a rental ad on Facebook Marketplace, Kijiji, or wherever it is, but they used the photos from a listing cut. So I'm like, yeah. damn, those are nice photos for a rental ad. And I'm like, oh, wait a second, that house is up for sale. Well, I've, you know, had a, I've had a bunch of people recently um, offer to rent places without seeing them. And it's like, oh my gosh, like you could easily keep these people's deposits. Mm -hmm. Just by running these fake ads, there's such a desperation for for units that, um, I mean, don't do this. Yeah, I know. Way. I'm like, I'm like, you're kind of you're kind of selling it here. Jay. Yeah, let's just like <laughs> crop this out, make this a a, a short don't uh, video. Do this ad. Like how to how to do run real estate uh, rental scams. But All right, we're in uh, we're in that other studio for a bit, so we're gonna before we transition yes. over. We're going to give a shout out, Key Player of the Week. Oh, yeah, Key Player of the Week. And we also have a couple questions that we're going to answer. Yeah, that's going to be at the end of the episode. Okay, cool. Uh, so, Key Player of this Week actually is is a, a buddy of mine, Elliot McNeil. Um, you guys might know him from around town. He's actually from Cape Breton initially, and he started off in marketing. One of the um, what's that? One of the buys. One of the buys, man. Super, super smart guy. Um, and he got into real estate after previously working uh, in the marketing world. And he has done a lot of stuff in downtown Dartmouth. Like, you could make a strong case for him almost single-handedly revitalizing downtown Dartmouth. Um, yeah, 100%. You know, if you think of some of your favorite restaurants and, and places in downtown Dartmouth, like, you know, the Canteen, um, Side Hustle, like, all these spots, those are actually in properties that, that Elliot uh, owns and has developed. Yep. And part of what he was so good at is, because of his marketing background, 
he could really pitch the finished product, both to lenders and to investors. And this is something we've talked a little bit about. If you're going out there trying to do these big renovation projects, because he was doing infill new construction, he was doing substantial renovations to projects. To finance finance them, you have to sell the lender and any investors on that finished dream. And, and he was great about that. And then he delivered through his company, which did the development, but also... Um, is a contracting company, Bruno Developments, and then now he's doing conversions under another company with a partner called Sidewalk Red here around town. Yeah, I'm going to hype him up with just a couple of things. I don't know what awards he has, but I imagine a ton because his builds are amazing from conceptual to actual finishing. Uh, he's done some neat projects downtown Dartmouth, like he bought the old Bell building and yeah. put an apartment building the inside Bell of it that there. goes yeah. up on top. Unbelievable, very cool building. We'll flash a photo of that up. He's definitely revitalized like a bunch of Portland Street. He has another project under the go right now where he's converting a hotel into apartments, and it looks amazing. Yeah, those um, are these micro-suites that I'm, we were actually supposed to go through and shoot some stuff there. I, I reached out to him before the holidays, but then things got crazy. I don't know if those are taking occupancy now, but we're talking like a really innovative micro-suite model with like Murphy beds that were custom built, a really cool atrium space so that you don't have a comp, like you don't have a living area in your unit, but you have a common area in the building. I really hope we get through that because it is super, super cool. Super neat building. He's also doing an office to residential conversion in downtown Halifax right across from us. Um, So yeah, very neat, interesting guy. We should definitely have him on and we should definitely go visit some of his properties. But Elliot McNeil is our key player of the week. I'm going to give him one last little thing. Um, So I met Elliot because I saw what he was doing and I thought it was so cool, and it was very much what I wanted to be doing. And I reached out to him on LinkedIn, and he said, no problem. I was Crazy. like, can, can I just pick your brain? And he just blew up his LinkedIn, by the way. Oh, oh, oh God, yeah, sorry, bro. That's <laughs> not good. Um, but he was just such a, a genuinely great guy, and I've said this before. Anyone who's actually doing things and is actually successful, um, as much as they can, they're going to be generous with their time and their information and, and helpful. And I know it meant a lot to me when, when he took the time to chat with me and, and he continues to this day to, to take my call when I have questions and, um, yeah, just a great guy. So, uh, Ellie McNeil, key player of the week. get him on so we can, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll share some of his insights too. and how he grew his business. But yeah. for now, we're going to hop into the other studio with Darren and Christina. Okay. Talking about how to get infinite banking. Yeah. Excited about infinite this. Infinite money. And this is going to sound like one of those things where a lot of maybe the younger listeners out there aren't going to be excited about um, what is ultimately an insurance-based product for uh, financial planning. But it has a real estate component. It has a private lending component. It has a leverage component. It is super cool. So check it out. All right. So thanks. We're switching over to Studio B here for the second half of today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. As always, like, follow, subscribe, press the little ringy button. Uh, we've got our guests on today. Um, Darren and Christina uh, from uh, Control and Compound. So I know you guys as our kind of fellow podcaster here at BNV, but tell us a little bit about yourselves and your background. Sure. So uh, I grew up in the city here, and then I lived ended up living in Toronto for probably five, six years, uh, various couple different stints. But uh, yeah, grew up in Dartmouth, economics degree, MBA, CFP, CLU, all those fancy letters after my name, and then I did all that so I could sell life insurance. Uh, <laughs> but but we really, we're, we're financial planners, but our firm specializes in this this high cash value life insurance stuff for real estate investors that we can get into today. Uh, but married, couple kids, good life. What about you, Christina? 
Yeah, uh, same here. I grew, was born and raised here. Well, actually not born. Sorry, I was born in Ontario, but raised here pretty much my whole life. Um, live here locally as well. Uh, I've been in the finance business for about 12 years or so now, but in the last five years really took um, specialization in infinite banking. But again, I'm a certified financial planner, chartered life, all those all those little letters that you got to get to get there. Yeah. Um, but now put a real focus on that infinite banking side of things. Working with real estate investors and business owners is another big one on, on that side of things. I'm super excited to talk about this, but I got a question for Neil before we start this. Okay, go ahead. Neil, how's your life insurance situation? It's actually not bad because I do have it. Okay. The reason I ask is because life insurance has to be the least sexy thing imaginable. And I always thought we're so fortunate because we have, we're selling the product that everyone wants to talk about, Mm. which is real estate. Yeah. Right. People who sell insurance, you can feel it. My God, man, that's got to be the worst. Like, all right, so in the event that you die, like you're, it's it's a tricky thing, and I make the most money when you're dead. (laughs) I know. I'm like, my wife is going to be loaded when (laughs) I die. I I told my mom that after I signed, I went home. I was like, you're set up. You're You're set up. Cake out, mom. If this car. Well, well, I tell my wife, I said, just do me one favor. I've got so much life insurance, and again, we buy it for the cash. Life insurance is a bonus, but I've got so much. I said, promise me one thing. At my, at my funeral, wear a veil so they won't see you smirking. Because <laughs> it's going to be a good payday for her. Well, why this is so relevant to our audience and, and why I put Neil on the spot there is that I know we all go nice out try. there. We, we, we leverage our properties to buy more properties. Leverage our life. And, um, you know, you always have that option. Like, would you like to click the uh, mortgage insurance with this mortgage product? And mm. anyone... Well, I certainly never clicked that, and there's all kinds of reasons. Maybe you guys can say why well, don't take the mortgage insurance, uh, replace it with a different product. But ultimately, a lot of people say no thanks to the life insurance that comes with the mortgage, but then also don't go out and get their own life insurance product. And they tend to be younger people because I was young one day, and I always was a little bit underinsured based on how many mortgages I had out there. So one of them, I got the application for the insurance, and I found it got kind of expensive, hence why that's why I bailed on it a lot of the time. But this one covered that if I had any uh, serious illness and it like listed them under there and one of them being cancer and not to joke about cancer at all. But I was like, man, I probably won't get it at this age. Hopefully knock on wood. Uh, But maybe if I take this loan and then I microwave my finger, I can get like cancer, skin (laughs) cancer on my finger. I'll go in and they'll wipe. Because I called them. I was like, will this wipe the mortgage? And they're like 100 percent. Like we have clients that have gotten cancer, unfortunately. But then we wipe their mortgage to zero. And I was like. All right, let's see. You're how a I psychopath. Can <laughs> um, uh, that's interesting you mentioned that because I remember when people first started pitching me, you know, life insurance products. So boring. The only two that have ever gotten me interested, and this I think is what you guys are going to talk about with your infinite banking because we're excited to see or to hear uh, for our listeners to hear what that's about. The only two that got me excited was critical illness and disability because I was like, all right, I'm probably not going to die at a young age. Right, knock on wood. But sometimes stuff happens from a critical illness or a disability component. So maybe I should be covered for that. But also the fact that some of the products you can roll over into your RRSPs down the road or get some of the money back. I'm like, so I can pay insurance and get the money back? Because a lot of people look at their insurance bill, and if you don't have to use it, you're like, damn it, I wasted all that money. Um, now, you guys are going to talk about these um, strategies where you don't. You actually get to use your insurance money, um, which is super cool. And that's the only time I've ever otherwise been excited about insurance are these whole life policies. And I, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I, you guys are going to explain it better, that you get the insurance and you get a cash value. And what's crazier is you can borrow against the cash value of leverage. it tax-free. So I'm like, <laughs> ah, did I hear borrow? Did I hear leverage? Like that I understand. <laughs> um, so we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I also, the way I got interested is I had, because again, especially in your 20s, people aren't really talking about it. And I don't necessarily know, you guys probably do try and pitch to 20-year-olds, but it's hard when they don't necessarily know what's going to be in their future. And sometimes it's, it's hard also, like, what do I really need this for? And do I have the extra money month to month to put away? And, yeah. Exactly. But I had um, a friend, Rusebay, actually, I'll call him out. He uh, works at CIBC. I think he's in Wood Gundy, and he is financial advisor. And he was like on me. He's like, man, you got to get into this. You have a lot of debt. And the big thing to consider is, and I think some people forget, is there's a tax liability associated with properties because over time you're consistently writing off, you're depreciating your property, which means that's how you save on paying taxes on the immediate day-to-day basis, and that's how you're able to make money off of them. But it means when you go to sell, there's a big tax liability with those properties. Yeah. Or if you die and they have to be sold, there's a big tax liability that gets passed to the next person um, in your family or whoever, your, your spouse or whatever it is. Uh, and so this is where the insurance can come into play is it can help to cover uh, some of that or potentially all of it depending how much how much you buy. Plus the additional things that Chandler talked about uh, with uh, being able to pay into it and then borrow back uh, a certain portion of it or potentially eventually more than you've, you've put into it. Um, and so, again, I'm, I'm don't, not an expert in this by any means, and I do find it a bit confusing. So hopefully you guys can help to sure. demystify it for, for us and, and our listeners. Yeah, so so let me tell you just quickly, uh, half the people we deal with when, when um, the, that we deal with this, business owners, real estate investors, wealthy individuals, they don't need insurance. Okay. Yeah. This is a want, okay? Yeah. Because this this insurance is going to benefit you in your lifetime. You buy this for you. You buy term insurance for your family if something happens to you. You buy this for you or you and your spouse. This is really benefit. But but you mentioned the mortgage insurance, and Christina, why don't we just do sort of a minute on on the mortgage insurance? Because you know, to sum it up, bank owned mortgage insurance evil. That's pretty much it. But Christina, you can, get, you can dig into the details. Why, why, why should nobody have mortgage insurance if they're insurable? Yeah, you were not wrong there. Uh, when you purchase uh, life insurance through the banking or through the lender, uh, what happens is it's a very easy sign-up. It's actually more expensive uh, at it the end of the day than your expensive. personal than your personal stuff that you can purchase. But there's a couple big, big differences that you want to be aware of. One is that you're paying for a death benefit that's decreasing with the mortgage. So say yep. you have 500000 you're paying for 500000 If you only have 300000 left, they're only paying out 300000 So yeah. you're paying for something you're not necessarily going to get, mm-hmm. which is a huge one. Also, like you don't own it, and you're not the beneficiary. So the bene- you're protecting the bank at the end of the day. You're not protecting yeah. your family because that check is just that, – that's just clearing the mortgage they're covered. When you purchase you know, a 500000 personally, um, your family's going to get that 500000 They can take the 300000 and pay it off keep that 200,000 difference um, or they don't even have, they could sell it if they wanted to. But the biggest one that really gets me with that insurance is that they don't actually approve you for it until after you die. So and if you retroactively, and like, you literally up sign up for this stuff <laughs> yeah. and then, you know, you're, you think that you've got it in place, but let's say you die and they go back and they look at your records and they're like, actually, we wouldn't have given you this insurance anyways. We wouldn't have done it. Like, they're delete, not gonna, delete my skip the dishes orders. Yeah. Like, <laughs> based on Neil's driving record, we can no longer insure him. <laughs> yeah. no, no, you but say this in jest, but, but it is true, right? You yeah, just take the happens. box and like, okay, we're going to charge you probably, I don't know, like, 20% more for a product that if you had a mortgage for $300,000 and you opted for the life insurance and you've paid your mortgage down to two fifty, the product, you're paying the same amount, but now it's only worth two fifty. It's not worth 300 anymore. Like yeah. it, it makes well, no sense. Picture if you made a lump sum on your, on your mortgage of 50 or a hundred grand or, or paid something off. And then all of a sudden you die. You just gave the bank yeah. 50 or a hundred grand. Like that's yeah. just, but that Christina's great point, like underwritten at time of issue, 
versus underwritten at, at, at time of claim. And that's yep. what the bank owned insurance. It's underwritten mm-hmm. at time of claim. So some teller asks you some questions, you check no, 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 no. They put it in a filing cabinet, Doesn't wait till anything. you die. No. Then they pull it out and go, okay, do we have to pay this claim? Yeah. Versus, which in about, you know, depending on who you listen to, somewhere around 20% of claim or yeah, cl- claims don't get paid. A, yeah, it pays out a lot lower. If you deal yeah. with a licensed insurance agent, you buy typically like a term 20 or some, some kind of product like that, very inexpensive, it's cheaper, but it's underwritten at time of issue. So they're going to ask you medical questions up front, and they're going to approve you, and you're approved. There's no going through the file if you die in five or ten years. There's no there's no fear of, you know, you get approved, and then you start, you know, smoking five packs of darts a day and, uh, yeah. and and doing whatever. It's not going to change, okay? So they can never change it. Which is why I think if you're in a position that you can afford it at a young age, it's best to go in because your premiums can be really low, and it's really totally easy to qualify because you pretty much are a no to everything. One thing I want to add to what you said, Christina, was something for people to consider. And I always say this with everything we talk about on here. But when you go to the bank, your advisor or whoever's giving you that mortgage is going to say all the opposite things. You're going to go, hey, I heard on the uh, Control and Compound or on Masterpiece podcast that I shouldn't be getting this. And they're going to push so hard to sell you on that product. And it's because they either get bonuses based on it um, mm-hmm. or it hits a certain production target that they need to meet. Um, I won't say who, but I have a friend in the bank that has done some mortgages for me. And what we'll do is I'll sign them up. And I'll take the mortgage, the insurance product on the first day, and then I'll cancel it the second month. Because he's like, man, I get a bigger bonus for you just signing up to this thing, and then you can cancel it in two weeks. I don't give a crap. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. anyways, not calling out who it is. So yeah, if they will push it hard, and you only take one thing from this, um, is that well, Banks take two evil. take two things from it. One, if you tick <laughs> yes on that box, know that you should be canceling that and going out and getting a better life insurance product getting approved first before you yes, cancel. Yes, don't cancel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until you get a new policy. Yeah, mm-hmm. make sure you get a, a new one kind of ready to go first. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that when you get these younger, they are cheaper, right? These term policies, they Way are cheaper, cheaper. when, you, when you're younger cheaper. and healthier. So uh, if you take nothing else, take that. But what we actually really want to get into, which I think is way more exciting, is this idea of infinite banking. So tell us how this epiphany came to you at some point, which was maybe the, the impetus or the, the catalyst behind this book being the bank, uh, and then you got more specific with uh, the infinite bank. When you were growing up business. and you figured out that you wanted to sell insurance. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I know a lot of guys in my MBA class at St. Mary's said, hey, let's get into the insurance world. Um, no, so I, I started out in the financial planning world and, you know, I was a regular financial planner for years and had a successful practice. It was nice. For me, the really aha moment was 2008. So I'm, I'm old enough to remember that crash of 2008. I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing. I was in Alaska with my buddy, Salmon Fishing, and life was what good. What could go wrong? You know, well, I'll tell you, I, I, I sold it to my wife. We had young kids at the time, a once-in-a-lifetime salmon fishing trip, and then I went like five times. So <laughs> one of my buddies threw me under the bus on one of those Christmas letters. I went on, went on Mitchell's once-in-a-lifetime annual salmon fishing trip. <laughs> what they called it. But I'm up there in Alaska, and all of a sudden, the market started crashing, just crash and fall of 08 and it's just mm-hmm. it's a mess so back then taking my blackberry driving to the hill on his truck trying to get reception saying how much did the market drop how much did the market drop and, and for me that was like oh my god that was the first time of down market for me in my life and it was like i'm totally out of control i don't know what to do and my clients i'm not in control of their money the market's free falling yeah there's, no there's nothing you can do for me that was yeah. the there's got to be a better way so 
I went and spent a couple hundred grand traveling around North America. I heard you guys talk on, on podcasts about mentors and how wealthy people will share information. I was blown away. They were like, well, this is what we do. This is what we do. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of them just come, coming back to this infinite banking or high cash value life insurance, um, which is a totally uncorrelated market that doesn't drop with the market, that doesn't go there. And, and then what I really, my, my takeaway from that education crusade was, if you want to be rich, do what rich people do. Mm-hmm. Pretty yep. simple. What do rich people do? They do three things better than anyone else. They invest in themselves. Listen to a podcast. Learn how to be a better real estate investor. Work with the right people. Join a real estate investing yep. group. Yep. Get your engineering degree. Whatever it is that's going to get you ahead, invest in yourself. Which people Constant are not engineering. afraid to spell on that yep. or invest in that? And then they start businesses. And number three, you guys, they start, they, they buy real estate. Yeah. So if you want to be rich, do what rich people do. Invest in yourself and invest in a business and invest in real estate. But Christina, we always talk that where to get rich is really step two. What's step one? Step one is where you want to save that wealth, save or store the wealth to be able to do it. So your money, right? Like you, in order to do any of those things, you either need cash, right? Have mm-hmm. cash on hand in order mm-hmm. to do it. Or what we bring and what we talk about is cash value. So cash value is a million times better at the end of the day. And that's what we kind of, <laughs> it really is, I swear. Yeah. And I can promise you, I can back it up. I can yeah. back it up um, when we talk about it. And then you take that cash value and obviously you multiply it and you put it back into your real, your you, your business, real estate, those other things. But if you build up that cash value base instead of just the cash, um, you can have your money doing a lot more things for you, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can really multiply um, those real estate returns for you at the end of the day, which is what we do. So we're taking a strategy. It's not so, you know, life insurance is the product, yeah. but really what we're talking about is the strategy, the infinite banking strategy and being able to leverage and, and build our cash, build our wealth so that we can go out and we can invest in those three things so that we can become wealthy and we can, you know, do what the rich do. Yeah. And that's where it gets exciting. And so you talk about having this experience of feeling like you didn't have control. So what does control and compound? I mean, that's what your financial consulting company is called, but that's also what your podcast is called that people can check out as well uh, on BNV, the same sort of platform that, that we make ours on. So what does control and compound mean? What are you controlling and, and what are you doing? Yeah. So, so let's talk about a, a typical infinite banking policy. So let's say it's 10, 20, 30, let's just pick 25 grand a year or something. Someone is contributing to that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, most people, they're buying it for the cash value. So you're going to see, you're going to be a little underwater year one eventually, but after a couple years, like two, three, you're going to be at the point where your cash value is growing by more than your deposit. So if you're putting 25 grand in, your cash value is growing, growing more than that. But that asset is, I, I believe the foundation is the most important part of a home or a building. Yep. The foundation of your financial plan, same idea. It's got to be rock solid and bulletproof. That asset is better than cash. It's uncorrelated to the market. In 08, when everything crashed, these paid dividends of 7% and change. 2022, when everything crashed, these paid dividends. The dividend increased from 6% to 6.1% last year in the middle of meltdown on the stock market, Bitcoin, and, and the fluctuation in real estate. So you're totally in control of your money. So for me, that's the big thing. Control of my money, uncorrelated, not correlated to the real estate market, not, 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 not correlated to the stock market. So that's the control. But for me, it's the second word, and. So what is an and asset? Every other asset you own is an or asset. You're going to buy this piece of real estate, or you're going to buy this landscaping business, or you're going to put it in the stock market. This is an and asset. That money is inside there, and that money is going to compound tax-free for the rest of my life. And I'm going to access it tax-free down the road. We'll get to, but that's going to compound tax-free for the rest of my life. So I'll give you a real estate example. I bought a fourplex a little over a year ago uh, in Ontario. Now it was, people go, 
Oh, that's expensive. Well, it was three hundred seventy-five grand. We got a great deal, but it was in Cornwall, right? So it right. wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't. Wasn't downtown Toronto. Yeah. So I had to come up with about eighty grand for that uh, down payment. So I went to my infinite banking policy and I said, you know what? I like the way that's compounding tax-free. It's going to give me a tax-free retirement. Why don't we leave that right there? And I said to the insurance company, can you give me $80,000 of your money? And they said, sure. And the reason they said sure is contractually, the companies that we deal with, they're required to loan you 90% of your cash value, no questions asked. Hey guys, we're jumping back and forth in between studios with this particular episode. We got more cool content with Control and Compound. I'm really excited for you guys to hear how you can leverage these policies and these programs to do creative things in real estate. And then we're going to pop back over to the other room and we've got some Q&As. Neil does a breakdown of some really suspect geography. You can check that out. We've got other things that you guys have asked us and we're going to get back to you. So you might hear your actual question there. Either way, you're going to take a lot of benefit from it. So keep listening. Thanks so much. Press the little ringy thing. Press the like button. This guy. So let me back this up for people because for our younger listeners who maybe don't have any insurance at all, let alone a whole life policy, in lay terms, and and correct me if I'm wrong about this, um, you're making these regular payments, okay? But part of them are maybe a a typical insurance premium, uh, and it's insuring you for X amount of of a death benefit. So I pay in every month, and I've got death coverage to such and such amount. But in addition to that, some of the premium in one way or the other is being stored there in cash value. Okay, so while you have the death benefit on one side of the ledger, ledger, you also have this actual hard cash value sitting over here. And what you're saying about the dividends is that that continues to grow effectively like a dividend uh, and expands and expands and expands. And eventually you have both the death benefit over here and a pretty significant chunk of cash. And what's cool about that cash is that it's growing tax-free but also you can borrow against it in the same way that you borrow against the equity in your home. You can borrow against the equity in your life insurance plan. Am I getting that right? Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. So, so on that example of the, of the fourplex, so then I went to the bank and the bank said, well, where'd you get the down payment? And I said, I borrowed from my cash value. And they said, cool. Cause they don't consider that a loan for borrowing capacity. Technically it's classified as an asset because yep. I could cash that out and take the money. It's not the great strategy. But so that didn't, that doesn't count. That, that doesn't show up on a credit report. Doesn't affect your borrowing Do you capacity. you pay interest on that loan? You can pay it back when you want, how you want, and if you want. Because you are the bank. You make all the decisions. Picture you being in the bank, making all the decisions. Well, this is what you are with your infinite banking policy. So I borrowed that 80 grand cash flow positive property. Okay. So we got paying that back. It's actually two duplexes on one piece of land. So it wasn't as desirable for some. Mm-hmm. So we went through the process. We got it subdivided now. We've got to put a separate sewer line is what we're going through now. We'll get those subdivided. We think they're going to come in around 320 to 340 uh, as in yeah, individual nice. units. Refinance that. Pay yeah, off the $80,000 plus interest. If I, if I didn't pay the interest, you have that choice. Rinse and repeat. The whole time I did that, my compounding inside my policy is totally unaffected. So my money was in the policy growing tax-free for my retirement. It was providing a death benefit, and it was in the real estate at the same time. So I've multiplied so my you, money. So you said the interest, that interest, you're choosing that interest rate, or is that being defined by the insurance? That's being defined. So the interest rates, up till about six months ago, we were looking at, you know, what, four, seven, four, seven to six. Yeah. Now we're like six to eight, depending upon the rates have spiked up, uh, for, for, for a lot of the companies. But that's exactly in line with the home equity line of credit. So it's a very, very similar product. And we sort of joked about how 
The thing that is really frustrating about insurance is if you never have to use it, you feel like you've wasted the money. And this is the exception to that rule where your money is working in three different ways. It's working to give you the death benefit. It's working to accrue over time as a cash value. And you can then tap into it. So you're kind of, you have the best of all worlds. And this is what finally got me excited about like insurance. It's like, oh, that's pretty damn cool. Because now when I fill out my net worth statement, I'm like, oh, my insurance policy has a cash value of like a hundred thousand bucks. And every time I fill that out, I'm like, Oh yeah, I forgot that at any time I could go and borrow against that. Um, so it really is cool. And the dividends that it pays are pretty good. And it's different than say, if you had bought an investment that was paying this return and then you wanted to access that, it's a little trickier. You have the fees, you've got to sell and, and all these things. In this case, you leverage it and it continues to grow. So if there's a hundred thousand dollars in there, it keeps growing while you just borrowed $90,000 of it. It's yeah. a really interesting product. You can leverage against investments, uh, I will say, yeah. especially in Maybe like 50% if, 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 if you're lucky. You're not going to get a 90% loan. Unsecured investments, exactly. I think I think GICs and, and secured investments, you can go up to 80%, yeah. 90% uh, on those loans. This definitely does seem like a, a better play. The I want to talk a bit more about the cash value because I think a lot of people are going to be like, oh, like you see, sign up, you pay a monthly premium, and now he's got $100,000 cash value. Um, you have probably tri- you probably <laughs> contributed so, yeah. more than $100,000 yes. off the start, right? And I think eventually it compounds where the cash value is more than you've contributed. And I think I was looking at charts and it's probably in the five to seven year range where it kind of breaks over. Yeah, um, but but I'd say it's probably year three where you get to a point where your contribution, your, your cash value is going up by more than contribution, but you're underwater, that, especially that year one. So yeah. by, by year five, six, seven, yeah, now what you've totally put in. But again... Sorry, so, Christine. Yeah. yeah, so I have something on uh, on that side of things with the cash value because I talk to a lot of people about these obviously every day yeah. and they're like, yeah, it's about seven years when my cat, you're right, like around six, depending on the policy around six, seven years that it's going to break even, right, yeah. is what you're looking at. Yeah. But in my mind, break even's actually, and, and when you think of it, break even's actually around year two because let's say you're using a $25,000 deposit, for example. Well, by year two, you've put in 50000 and yeah. inside this policy, there's usually around 40000 or so, let's say. Yeah. So you've got 40000 inside of this policy that's earning around 5% is what we see inside these policies, you know, over time, around five. So you're earning 5% on 40, tax but free. Ne- tax-free. Yeah. But I can also take $30,000 tax-free because I can take 90%. And I can go put that in a private lend and I can make, you know, 13, 14%. So now I've actually got 70,000 working for my 50 because I have 40,000 earning. I have 30,000 earning. I would call that pretty darn break even actually a bit more right at the end of the day. So that's how you got to, it's a mind shift when you're looking at it and the leverage piece. And this is why real estate investors like it so much because they get it. Right, they know that if they can get it working in two places, and, and, and the same concept with real estate, like you're yeah. leveraging. Like when you start buying more and more, you're leveraging from your like. Everyone's like, oh, it sounds like you just keep releveraging yourself. Well, that's what you're doing in real estate. If you have any loan, you're technically leveraging to make your next purchase or investment. At the end of the day, if you owe money anywhere, because if you if you that means that money's not paid off, that means you're paying an interest rate to utilize your money to make more money. So in real estate, you're basically borrowing your next down payment from your current property to do so. And so this runs that same concept. You're borrowing and you can go out and reinvest that money and make money off of that while your original piece of, of cash is also making money. Um, but yeah, what, what were we going to say? Well, I was going to say, when people ask me, used to ask me about the refinance model and you refinance and buy and refinance and buy again, but you don't understand, I'm basically taking the same $60,000 and using it over and over and over again. I use it on a down payment Infinite property money. of this. I refinance, I take it back out, I do it again. So all I'm doing is actually just taking the same money and making it work further and further. And the other thing 
and I know this is the least cool part about it, you're also covered in the event that you die Oh yeah. Um, while all this is going on. So if you're going to get insurance anyway, um, this would be the one to get. Yes, the payments are higher, but you actually get the money back. And that's well, it's an investment. Not, it's an investment or a savings plan, not, a, not an expense, right? Term insurance yeah, is an expense. It's like car insurance is an expense. You pay it, you're probably not going to I think you can also pay through your court, can't you? Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Sure yeah. can. So, so that's and pretty damn cool, well. too. You pay a yeah, corporate? Corp? Probably a fence or write-off. Right. Is it not? So. Yeah. It's not a write-off, but okay. you get to use your corporate Cheap dollars, right? Okay, corporate yeah. dollars. Okay. Yeah. The next thing is, is the cash value guaranteed? Like, or how, how does that work? Because I remember reading on one of them that the cash value is subject to potentially changing. How, how does that work? Yeah, so so there's the, on a typical insurance, you know, ledger spreadsheet, there's, there's cash value guaranteed and cash value based upon dividends. So... You know, we talk about real estate being around for thousands of years. Well, this has been around since 1846. So this is this is not a new product. We use four companies. The newest one we use has a 100-year track record. Of all those four companies, not one of these companies have ever missed a dividend, ever. World War One, World War II, dot-com, Spanish flu, COVID, you name it, they've never missed a dividend for 150 years. So we have that guaranteed column that if we have a nuclear war, I guess, would, would kick in. Mm-hmm. But in 150 years, none of the four companies have ever had to execute the guaranteed increase. So you get a small increase in the guaranteed, but based upon the dividends. But, you know, you have these massive whole life funds with 150-year track record that invest a lot like real estate investors. They invest in real estate, mortgages, bonds, a little bit in the stock market, um, but heavily in real estate and, and mortgages. So they're, again... That's where the money. That's where the money's been made. Ninety percent of millionaires and billionaires. The whole life fund invests a lot like that. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to add to that as well, though, is that once a dividend's been paid, it's become it becomes guaranteed. So this can't go backwards. So once your cash value, you, it, that dividend gets paid, and your cash value is sitting at forty, it can never be less than forty again. So you can't lose it because the dividend goes backwards, like the market. Was yeah, because the dividend basically goes right towards your cash value, but, and, and then it's done. Yeah. It's guaranteed. Yep. Like every single year going forward, it's, it's locked not like in getting for another you. share that in turn could go down. Like exactly. if someone's in some sort of drip, they might get issued new shares. Um, you know, but then if those shares go down, in theory, the dividend that they use has gone down as well. It's not the case in, in this. Now, when you refer to this, you say two things like one, wealthy people um, do this. And I've got an interesting um, anecdote about this, which when something kind of clicked for me as well, is I had a client who has a very wealthy parent. And rather than them go and get a bank mortgage, this individual, because they were so wealthy, could get a line of credit effectively or employ a line of credit. Maybe he was doing this exact strategy and it was at a rate that was cheaper than the mm-hmm. mortgage. He's like, no, no, I'll just, I have access to a borrowing ability that, you know, maybe maybe he could borrow money at one way or another at 4%. So he, why would you guys pay a 5.5% interest rate? And that's how a lot of people do private lending. There's this misconception that all private lending is, you know, some monopoly people back there with like stacks of cash and just issuing it out. In a lot of cases, it's that they have access to cheaper money than you do, right? If I have access to money at 6%, I will happily lend it out at 12 If they're a business right? person, yeah, they're not using cash. They're, exactly. they're borrowing money. Again, it's the same concept. Even if they have a loan on their personal home, but they're doing private lending with cash out of their accounts, that's the equivalent of them borrowing money to do it because they haven't paid off all of their loans. So pe- people yeah, will, yeah. like you said, long term short, people always borrow to relend, and that's the same thing with real estate. Like you said, we make a higher return than the cost of borrowing the money, and we're taking that margin and multiplying it. Um, yeah, so just on private private lending there, Neil. So I, yeah. I did a private lend last year, right? So I do some private lending. And it was uh, it was actually a local guy here that had a building in uh, New Brunswick. Uh, I think it was 
36 unit or something. Nice. So I was in the second position, but he put up t- all of his 92 units in the second position. And, you know, I knew the guy was pretty comfortable with, with, with the risk. Well, it was 15% for a year for the private lend. Nice. I didn't use my money. Again, I went to the... I went to my cash value life insurance. I did more than 100000 and I said, hey, why don't we leave that, let it grow tax-free for the rest of my life. I can access it tax-free in retirement. I called the insurance company and said, can I have hundred grand?" And they always ask you two questions. Typically, we call our office, but they'll ask you two questions. Do you want a check or do you want to deposit it in your bank account? They don't ask you what it's for, when you're paying it back, if it's a good investment, if you really should be doing this. They gave me hundred grand. I loaned out hundred grand at 15%. A year later, I got a check for one fifteen. I went back and paid the insurance company 105 basically, yeah. and I kept that 10. That's an and asset. That's how many... So I look at my and wealth meanwhile, now... meanwhile, your, your actual thing was still growing, exactly. and you still had the death coverage. So it's, Exactly. It's, it's so right my cash there. value... So my money was doing more, more, more than one thing at the same time, and it was doing more than one job, right? And that's why I love real estate. As Christine and I are both real estate investors, is you put money in the stock market, what's your goal? Potentially one job. Your money goes up mm-hmm. in value. But if we put it into... Real estate, while we can have appreciation, we can do a reno, we can have cash flow, we get the power of leverage, we get the tax deduction. Uh, what else we got, Christina? Uh, tenants paying down the mortgage. So you get these multiple jobs. Well, it's the same idea here. We're going to take some money and say, instead of doing real estate first, let's build an opportunity fund that when the market crashes, isn't going to crash. And then when we go to do that, we'll borrow the money out, do, do the real estate, and through cash flow or refinancing, we'll pay that loan back and we'll rinse and repeat, but by flowing it through the insurance policy, we've got that death benefit, you get the tax-free growth that you can use for retirement. There's all kinds of particular things. If you're what, terminally ill, they'll advance 25% of the death benefit. For me, I got to a point where I still had term insurance for my properties and, and look after my family if something happened. But my dollars going into cash value, pure cash value is why I was buying it, was doing another job, yeah. which was providing a death benefit. So I was yeah. able to gas $200 a month of term insurance that I no longer needed because this was doing another job. So it's multiplied dollars with multiple jobs in those dollars as opposed to one potential job in the stock market. So I've got a big scheme, and you tell me if it's going to work out. It's I get shaped like this. It's pyramided <laughs> in shape, and I'm at the top. Um, <laughs> I reach a point where the cash value of my whole life policy is a couple million bucks. Yep. Uh, I'm a little aged. I'm getting up there. And I just borrow against it, and that's how I live out my days. I borrow $1.8 million over a period of time, uh, and that's how I ride out my days. And then I die, and the policy covers what I borrowed anyway. But I've borrowed that $1.8 million tax-free. Yeah, so so let's let's talk about that. So let's say one point eight million dollars. Let's say your death benefit's three million. Okay, so now you're sixty five, seventy years old, and you go. It was a good run, Darren. I leveraged this twelve times. I got to whack more properties. I don't want to do that crap anymore. What I just want to chill on a beach, spend this money, so we can go. Okay, well let let's set up a. You can do lump sum, but typically people will do annually. Why don't I borrow one hundred and eighty grand a year? Say one hundred and eighty grand a year. That's a loan. That's tax-free money. Yeah. So that's going to be interest on it, but the interest is way less. Right. Than the tax. But in the, when when you're older, we can actually capitalize that interest. So you're not you're you're being charged the interest, but it's going to capitalize. But here's the cool thing: if you had 1.8 million dollars in the stock market and you started spending that, the next year you'd have 1.6 something, 1.4 something, 1.3 something. Right. You're tax, not cashing out yeah. the cash, but no, no, not because you're depreciating the capital. Because you're you're depreciating the capital. Here, you're 1.8 million. Well. 10 years later, that's probably going to be worth 3.6 million. 
Right. I because that money's that continuing to compound. So we're not interrupting the compounding. It's continuing to compound. Right. So now that money that you take out, you could take out a lot more on that loan because now you you could retire and still still compound uninterrupted for another 30 years. Right. So the amount that you can take out on these loans tends to be higher than a traditional investment. And that's just the kicker at the end, the mm-hmm. bonus tax-free retirement income, uh, it's, it's, you know, the, it's the, what can you use in the first 20 years to multiply your, your, your assets? Yeah. When you see you can capitalize the interest, uh, for somebody at the, let's say at the end of their, their policy, what does that look like? And what exactly is that? Yeah. So if, if you take a hundred thousand dollar loan and you're going to be charged five or 6% interest, you get, you get the option to pay that or you get the option to just let it ride. And we don't encourage people to let it ride long-term when they're young <laughs> because, you know, we, we, we love the snowball analogy, compound interest. It's like a snowball, right? Mm-hmm. You roll it, roll it, roll it. Well, we want to roll a snowball for 60, 70 years. Mm-hmm. That's one big old snowball. Yeah. Most people, the snowball gets eroded through taxes, fees, or they spend it, right? Yeah. We never need to spend it. So we're, we're going to do that forever. Where's it going with this, Christina? Well, yeah, the capitalization oh, on, the, on the um, interest rates. But I'll cut... We use a line of credit, right? So you're not going to take the whole amount in every single year. Like you said, you're going to take 180000 You're paying interest that year of 180000 but we've got $1.8 million that's earning dividends. Right. Like you can yeah. very easily keep up with this. Yeah, in a couple of years, you're three point six. You're making a 6% yeah, dividend. Think, exactly. You're actually on a higher amount. You're actually going to still be making more money. And you do. Even paying the interest. Exactly. exactly. That's, that's so the whole idea. That, so my scheme's going to work, is what yeah, you're telling the, me. The, yes. the, yeah. And here, here's the great thing. <laughs> it's all coming so back channel. Tax free. Are still but here, here's the great thing. You, you know, I know you got kids and you got all kinds of properties. Well, I always tell people, I go, this is a cool part. Great. In your example, I'm going to have $1.8 million of cash value, $3 million of death benefit, whatever the number is. So at that point, you can choose what you what you do with that money. You can say, you know what, maybe I want to spend up to $2 million owing because my, my cash value will grow to three or four. Maybe I want to spend like $2 million while I'm living and leave a little bit to my family because there's always going to be something left for your family because the death benefit's always up here. The loan's going to be a little lower sorry, the cash value is a little yep. lower and the loan's 90%. So there's yep. always a spread between death benefit. So, you know, it's great. You get to spend that, you know, $1.8 million and your family gets $1.2 million. Or maybe you want to spend two and a half, leave your family half a million. Seems or a maybe you're going to be really rich, continue to be wealthier, and you're going to reach a point and you go, huh, well, maybe I don't need to access this. I still like having it for the emergencies in retirement, but maybe I can leave that full three or $4 million death benefit to keep the the, the family legacy going and to keep well, these to properties in the family, yeah, exactly. pay off debts, don't have to have fire sales, et cetera. Yeah. yeah, one of the best things about it is you've kind of cut CRA from your plan as well, right? Because they're not getting it when you spend it and they're yeah. not getting it when you die anymore. And kinda- I'm buying it through my corp at corporation dollars as opposed to personal dollars. Last question I'm going to ask you guys is um, can you modify the amount that you're contributing and like do you have to lock that in in advance? Kind of my the way I've understood is you kind of have to pick like okay for the next five years I'm contributing $25,000 a year Um, like is that the case or is it every year you can be like this year I'm going to do $100,000 next year I'm going to do $200,000 and like how does that impact things? Is then your your end value um, the premium, at the, the value at the, at the end is worth a ton more. And I don't mean cash value, sorry, the, the payout, uh, the death benefit. Does that change dramatically? Like, are you able to kind of move it around? From my understanding, I feel like you have to pick your terms within that. Yeah, it's, it's typically fixed. So okay. I, have, I have eight of these policies. And the reason the reason I have eight of these policies Jesus, okay. and I put, you know, significant oh, sums of... <laughs> I have eight, eight lives. lives. I have eight <laughs> policies. Um, so I have eight of these. But, the, you know, it started out going, ah, oh, you know, grand a thousand bucks was this good idea. And then it's like, huh, 
well, this is a really good idea and it's actually working like like they said. And then now clients come back to us and buy multiple policies. So yeah, you're kind of fixed at that thing. Now, if you know you got a lump sum coming in a year or two, we can build it in to say we can accommodate that. Correct. But you go back to, you know, uh, um, uh, Chandler, you talked about, you know, you pick a death benefit. We actually don't pick a death benefit. That's the way a traditional advisor is going to do insurance agent, right? How much death benefit do you want? A million. Oh, you can do this and you can have cash value too. We're the exact opposite. We're trying to design this contract. This is what we specialize in to be the most efficient possible. And the way we design that is we want the smallest death benefit legally required for this amount of cash. So we start with, okay, you want to do $25,000 a year? Great. Well, at your age, the smallest death benefit we need for that is 436116 And that'll be your starting death benefit. Not a round number, because we want it efficient as possible. And that means we're going to maximize the cash because we have the smallest insurance costs. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's yeah. the... We've got, some flexibi- we've got some flexibility around it, too. Like, you kind of decide on the deposit that you want to do. But when these are built correctly, there is flexibility in the deposit amount. So there's okay. a lot of advisors out there that don't set them up correctly, and you have to be careful. There should always be a flexibility amount between a minimum amount that you can be putting in there each year and a maximum. You always want to maximize it. Maximizing is always the best. Yeah. But from... Uh, okay, well, what if I have a bad year perspective and business kind of thing? We do have wiggle room on that side of things as well. So we can structure it and we do have some flexibility um, to work within and, a plan. And full disclosure, yeah. like they are a bit more expensive than a, than a term insurance policy. Like you are making larger contributions because of what they do. But it's yeah. not an expense, right? It's like ex- it's somewhere you want money to put yeah, Putting yeah, money in your bank account is not an expense. Exactly. The death benefit's just a bonus, right? Yeah. Well, it, it, it's a very good yeah. bonus, but it's on there, right? I know yeah. you've talked about a few things in the book. Is there anything here that outlines maybe any cons or risks to doing this? Yeah, I mean, the biggest risk of this, and when we go through this, like, so, you know, Great. We, we have clients come to us all across Canada. We were coast to coast and, and we call it our education session. So the first thing is an hour education session. And we, we, we go through sort of the pros and the cons. And really the big con is if you can't come up with premium number two, you're yeah, screwed. Yeah, right. You're screwed. Yeah, yeah. Now, most insurance contracts, you could have zero cash value for 10 years or term insurance zero for life. So if you're in month, you're in year seven and you miss a payment, boom, policy's gone. Because we're so front-loading these with cash and minimizing the insurance costs, once you reach the second year, which is typically, if you're paying annually, is 12 months in a day, right? Mm -hmm. You pay once now and you pay again in 12 months. Now, we're at a point where if something hits the fan and you got a bunch of projects on the go or something, a roof goes, you can choose not to make a payment that, that year. You can actually, you'll have enough cash value after two years to borrow from your own policy if you want to oh, make yes. that $25,000 yeah, 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 deposit. Yeah. And again, yeah. 99% of policies are not designed that way that if you can't come up with year three or four or five, you're screwed. And that's why working with so many real estate investors, flexibility is the key. Flexibility yeah. and, and just maximum efficiency as far as cash goes. So I got a couple questions maybe just to, to wrap us up here. First is... Is it cool if we give away these to someone that's listened to the episode? Absolutely. Yep. Okay, so we're going to have all the details in, in our post about this, but you guys are willing to take on a complimentary uh, consultation, I guess, with, with listeners who are interested? Yeah, Christina, yeah, why don't cool. you talk about the front of the line uh, that we've got uh, set up for the Master Key list? Yeah, Sweet. we have a um, so a website. You go to controlandcompound.com slash masterkeys, and you're going to be able to get a complimentary uh, VIP session with uh, one of our wealth coaches. So you can take that nice. education session that uh, Darren talked about, kind of the first step to learning more about infinite banking. Cool. We'll definitely awesome. promote that. And again, yeah. some lucky people will get a copy of this book. Otherwise, how can they reach you? 
Yeah, through the website, so controlandcompound.com. We're also on, you know, Instagram at Control and Compound, TikTok. We've got our podcast, Control and Compound, there as well. I know you guys are going to be on it in a, in a couple weeks too, so yeah. you're going to want to check those <laughs> yep. out. Um, yeah, so anywhere, wherever you guys are, we pretty much are too. <laughs> That's awesome. Again, this is one of those topics that um, it's almost like people don't know that they should know about it. You know what yeah. I mean? So I think education, we talked about that. We're big promoters of education. Learn, learn, learn. This is something that if you're serious about this, it's going to have to be a tool. It's going to have to be something in your long-term planning. And I know a lot of our listeners, you're young. You're not necessarily thinking that far ahead. But everyone knows a snowball. The earlier you can get it rolling, the better. And this is something that if you can can make it work, it's going to pay off for sure in dividends, no pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Take on a policy. I'll say that for young listeners. Take on a policy now because the rates are so much more favorable uh, than, than as you get older. But, yeah. Thanks, guys. Appreciate yeah, it. Thanks Thank so you for coming Thank you for on. That was us. awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks. We good, we good, we good. We're back. Switching back here for the last segment. Thanks for listening to this point. We're going to whip through some uh, questions that you guys have put on our various platforms. We really want you guys to continue doing that, and we will get to responses. We're going to put them both online, uh, but also uh, cover some of them here so that everyone can benefit. 100%. I'm yeah. just going to get them up. Everyone's got to stand by and uh, listen to me click away here. How's life? Life's good, man. Life's yeah. good. I'm excited. We're Neil's waking up early these days. We're waking up early these days. It's ramp up time. It's that time of year. Yeah, I'd say in the last ten days, I've probably woken up seven days pre seven a.m. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of insane. There's gonna be people out there that wake up at six o'clock every day or five thirty and be like, "That's pathetic." But um, you know, hey, little steps to everyone. Everyone's everyone's different. But starting your day early, have you noticed a difference? I very much have noticed a difference. The biggest thing is is my days feel like long and full, which is exciting. Like I do a bunch of stuff, and I'm like, holy shit, it's three o'clock. Whereas yep. I used to always do a bunch of stuff. And then it was six, and then I was like, I gotta go to the gym, and it just kind of always—I always felt like I was catching up with every day that I was doing. And really, the time that I was wasting was from ten to midnight, which it was—I was nothing of any value was taking place. Yeah. And so now I've just shifted that away. Uh, and so, like, if I can get to the point where I'm getting up at like six comfortably, going to the gym, then I think my day will be so locked in. Um, but I gotta say, if, if someone's listening to this point and they're like, "Oh, that's pathetic that he hasn't been getting up." We are all different, and you can yep. succeed in your own ways. Like, I like to work at nighttime. So 11 o'clock at night, I'm on my computer working. However, also, I don't necessarily feel like I have to justify it because I'm like, hey, live your the, life. Live I your live life. my life the way I want to live it, and the business has done well for what I wanted it to do. And it, it kind of worked on that. And realistically, as a real estate agent, not a whole hell of a lot's going on in the morning. No. We're no. evening people. Like, everyone's yep. got to do their showings in the evening. You're doing offers at night. Uh, However, it's kind of worked out. But you know, if it's you better be- to run it like this. Yeah, and if you believe in emulating success, a lot of successful people... One 100%. habit they, they share is getting up earlier. You're more effective. It's great. I like emulating great sleep. Time. <laughs> I like emulating <laughs> sleep with people. All right. I got the questions open. Uh, I am going to read the first one. Yeah. And we're going to try and talk them over. Okay. So, Michael Tompkins, thanks to the new heat on the Airbnb subject. Still interested no to know if their map of what is allowed is a hard commercial or residential property or an actual zone where they may be allowed. So... I th- to summarize that, I think what he's asking effectively is, is there set zones and areas? Like a drawing, yeah. On a that, drawing yeah. similar to what we had here of like a center plan that says you can have Airbnbs in these areas or specifically within these commercial uh, zonings, you're allowed to have it, which you can then go to the map and see. Yeah, the, I mean, the answer, the answer is no. Well, the answer is kind of yes and no. Like there's not going to be, like we have the center plan now in, in the first package, right? And so the center plan is not complete uh, in that it's going 
they're, they're starting with the core and they're going to work their way out slowly from, from there. But what has been completed is effectively that map as to where Airbnbs are going to be allowed. It is going to be designated effectively a commercial use. So mm-hmm. if it's a commercial area or if it's an allow area that allows commercial use, uh, that will permit an Airbnb. The second component is if it's in a residential area, it only allows for short-term rental if it's in your primary residence. So there you go. If you have a map that shows commercial and residential, you have the map of Airbnbs. It's just different rules for each area. There's nothing that's going to say unilaterally, you cannot do an Airbnb in this area. Um, because if it's a residential area, you can do one there provided it's your primary residence. And that's going to be yeah. the big hiccup for people. And that's going to be municipality by municipality. But on the flip side, commercially, you can do some really unique things like commercial spaces, commercial condos could be converted into Airbnbs. The biggest thing to consider is if you do that and you go through the permitting process, there's going to be some pretty intensive fire regulations because it's short-term residential usage. Also, your condo board could Your condo board could hate that. But if if you own the building and it's got commercial space, let's just say, um, it it could have some serious ramifications on what is required for fire, uh, fire code. I've seen that in a few buildings that they've that have been short-term rentals or motels, whatever it is, and then the new fire code comes in, and you don't get grandfathered in with that kind of stuff. Yeah. You have to bring it up to code, and it's unbelievably expensive. But anyways, okay, moving on to the next question. Ben LeBlanc, on the subject of pulling equity from your home, how does someone know what renovations add the most equity to a home? Well, you listen to the Master Keys podcast. That's the first answer. Actually, check out our Patreon, because we really get into it there. Um, But I I always say the one way to do it like on on an easy basis is like, First of all, brands don't really make a difference. Our house prices aren't at a, at a level where it's like, oh, this super fancy whatever is worth $5,000 more than the next one. Yeah, That kind of stuff, it's like, okay, it's a brand new toilet, it's a brand new toilet. Um, but renovations that create a big visual upgrade, right? When you think of things that when you walk in the door, they're going to make a big change. It's like if you change the flooring to a modern color, that's going to add a ton of value. If you go and do a kitchen, kitchen yeah. and bathrooms are worth a fortune. Um, yeah, appraisals, stainless steel appliances, like those are all check boxes on their list. Um, those are items that I say are worth doing. But as a whole, you just got to make the property look and feel good. Because the other thing is, on top of the checklist, an appraiser is a person, and so if they come and the property feels really nice, it's a lot easier for them to justify through photos in their list that this is a decent property. Yeah, I'm going to add some nuance to that. Like the first thing is re- remember that appraisal is meant to be a best estimate of market value. So anything that's going to raise market value is going to raise the uh, appraised value. So these are things like kitchens, obviously, uh, and bathrooms. They have a major impact. Curb appeal, all these things, the overall level of the finish is going to have a positive impact on your appraisal. The other thing, though, appraisers do a lot by square footage and room counts. So if you can add an extra bedroom yeah. or you can add an extra bathroom or you can just finish more square footage, that is going to have a huge impact on your appraisal value. So an unfinished basement that you convert to like add an extra ba- uh, bedroom, add an extra rec room and add an extra bathroom, that's huge, yeah. right? Because then they're looking at literal price per square foot and that's going to skyrocket your appraisal value. And uh, or an in-law suite as well. If you can add or an, an in-law, in-law suite, suite yeah. those things are also super valuable because it's another home effect. And we're talking like single-family residential there. If you have multi-unit, rent and cash have a big impact on your appraisal. Net, yeah, in, net it's income, all, right? It's all so. rent. Like it's 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 income based. But next question, Ernest Stapleton, um, how can you structure a sale of ownership in a property that is allowed inside your mortgages? Can you sell 25% of the upside with a min and maximum appreciation rate, allowing you to move all your cash used at the time of purchase? I think what they're suggesting is they own a property, they're 25% in, and they're looking to sell out to an equity partner. 
So mm-hmm. they have equity partners buying 25%, and they're saying that gives them their 25% cash back, and the other 75% that they own is actually effectively 100% leveraged. Um, oh, okay, okay, okay. Do you know what I mean? Which is yep. kind of clever. I've never actually thought about it like that. I'm going to automatically say no, because and the overruling body in this is going to be your bank. When you sign that bank mortgage, there's going to be a bunch of, of rules in there regarding uh, selling fractional ownership and all that, and they're going to expect that if you... If the if the deed changes, they're gonna get updated by your lawyer. And when the second that happens, they're gonna be like, Whoa, whoa, we're getting paid out twenty five percent and you're getting back twenty five percent. Well, the issue is as soon as you change title, you you, you have mortgage. to change the mortgage, yeah. right? Like so the only instance that this scenario could work would be if you owned the property in a corporation and in turn that corporation had shares. So for example, if Neil and I um, you know, owned a property under our corporation and we had four shares. Maybe Neil had two and I had two. If we wanted to, we could sell one of the shares in our company to someone else, and that doesn't change title because the title of the property is our corporation. Now, the new ones legal obligation to notify the mortgage. Yeah, totally. Like they will wonder who are the shareholders. And now the interesting thing is, though, could that share purchase be then releasable to the other shareholders? right away like there is something yeah. interesting there that i haven't uh, thought about no, i am 100 percent that you have the, the second you you make any sort of changes to a share structure with a commercial mortgage you absolutely have to let the mortgage company know 100 oh, and if you don't fine nothing's gonna happen like you don't you can do it nothing's gonna happen but the second your annual review comes up they're gonna hit you with like either this needs to go or you've just done mortgage fraud oh yeah I, i'm not saying that but i'm tr- i'm thinking of a scenario whereby um yeah, I, I think you can. We yeah. can sell. Let's say I sold one share to uh, Mark to jump in for a hundred thousand bucks. We could then withdraw that cash instantly. Nothing's going to yeah. happen. No one audits that uh, officially until the end of the year when they're going to ask for the books. Yeah, and if like the corporation, like that would be money into the corporation, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you could withdraw that as a dividend, you would or even so even a shareholder shit. loan, right? You would, you would um, get in so much shit for the change of ownership without telling them. No, I, I'm not saying not telling them. I'm just saying you would tell them that there's an additional shareholder in this corp. But if like, okay, fine, there's an additional shareholder in this corp, but you still have 25% oh, equity in the saying. property. But then behind the scenes, like there was also this injection of cash into that corporation. Yeah. And if that corporation then wanted to make a shareholder loan or a dividend payment to you and me, there's something kind of there. There is kind of something there. Consult your con- accountant, but yeah, I like where your head's don't, at. don't. I <laughs> I want nothing to do with this <laughs> on the mic. <laughs> on the, the mic. mic. No. Maybe uh, this is a Patreon episode. Yeah. And you're coming on to explain this one to us. You guys um, got to check out the Patreon, man. That's where we get into the the, the dirty. <laughs> the dirty. <laughs> that's our OnlyFans, guys. Uh, um, that's right. So, okay, we got a couple off Instagram here. Um, Ty Doucette wants to hear about capital partners, structures, and payouts. That's definitely Patreon. Um I mean, we talk about yeah. that. I'm, we talk about much, JVs. We're there's too much to talk about there. There's a million and one structures. It's pretty much one of the best ways to grow if you want to do it in an expedited way. I've done it to, to buy a few properties. Even Ty might have found what we just talked about with shareholder setups of a corporation. Some value. Kind of relevant, yeah. Yeah, but Ty, check out the Patreon. Uh, we are going to do a free month here some point in time. Uh, next one is Mike Harris. What systems need to be in place to manage an STR and or long-term rentals from afar? So short, uh, STR is a short-term ooh. rental, and he's asking him how to do this from afar. There's no great way. I'm gonna way. put my microphone away because I'm not the person to ask about this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Chandler is, if anything, in, ingrained into his system. Um, I can say, being someone who's kind of checked out, I hired a property management company. I've g- gone through a bunch of them, 
And I really struggled. Like, no one's going to care about your investment or your property like you do. And so I honestly believe you will lose way more money than even the little bit of management fee that they charge. Um, I now have a full-time person, Josh. Shout out if he's listening. He's amazing. Um, and he allows me to... Feel better soon, Josh. <laughs> he was nasally this morning. Um, but he's allowed me a lot of freedom to invest in other businesses and also travel. Um, but it costs me a lot to do that. And I'm spending as much or more than I would be if I had hired a management company. Um, Here's so what I think you need. It, it, there's no set way, I think, honestly, to, to handle it. A I superintendent think, I, I, with a good manager? Yeah, if you're talking short-term rentals from away, I think you need a uh, lawyer, accountant, real estate agent to understand the nuance of the particular municipality you're investing in and yep. the possible zoning ramifications uh, and, in turn, possible tax ramifications. I think he means once you own it, though. Like but once you own it, it, you need... Uh, effectively a property manager which is going to be 20 percent and that property manager is going to already have the systems if you're trying to do this as a one-off you're literally like going to individually hire a property manager individually hire a lawn care company individually hire a maintenance person and then individually hire a cleaner or you just get the all-in-one property management company uh who will charge you probably around 20 percent but they will already have Airbnb? those staff 30. 30 a yeah okay maybe my deal's not too bad at 20 percent but on top of that 20 percent it's 20 percent plus playing paying a cleaner uh you know plus yeah someone to mow the lawn right but someone else should have all those systems in place for you but maybe you get up around 30 percent fight me on this but i think it's easier to manage a short-term rental from a distance than a long term because because you pay these companies 25 30 percent and they actually run it and they get paid on the fact that they're going to get a bunch of rentals so it's easier yeah, to do it, whereas yeah, I find yeah. with the long-term rentals, like the people aren't but managing, not managing it. What? But you're not managing it. You're someone else is managing it, so you can't say it's easier to manage one. Well, <laughs> you're not it's, managing it's easier it. to own one. It's easier to own. Okay. In my opinion, From a if distance, you have yeah, a good company that runs thought. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, the next two, again, these are like things that people want to talk about. So we're going to actually do actual episodes. One, uh, Heman J11, migration across the country. We're just going to make an episode out of that, but a lot of you guys already know there's been a huge migration of people from west to east. I think predominantly the west was uh, more favorable, I think, for climate and then also financials because your proximity to Asia. And so there's a lot of money being made in the west. And I think that's starting to taxes. slow down and, and peak. And so what's happening is you're seeing people move to the east because it's a lot more affordable. And there's a lot of great opportunities arising on this side, especially on my, on, from my opinion, uh, due to the proximity to India, which is now blowing up North America. So, anyways, we'll do we'll do an episode. I think on migration, I, I like that. Is like the the East Coast closer to India than the West Coast? Uh, I don't necessarily know if it formally is, but I know a lot of Indians are moving to the East Coast. Is it informally closer? <laughs> <laughs> this guy. All right, we're going right now. No, we're doing it. We're doing this. Halifax to India distance. Like, well, it's not. It's not formally closer. But In, it's informally. There's a better direct yeah. route. I actually took intro to informal geography. In high school, so a bit of a savant. <laughs> <laughs> I, this guy getting out the latitude and longitude. See, see it is. It is. So it's eleven thousand nine hundred and thirty-six kilometers, Vancouver to India, okay. and Halifax, India, is eleven thousand eight hundred eighteen kilometers. So it is a hundred and twenty-eight kilometers closer <laughs> okay, to go to Halifax right. than I to go to Vancouver. Corrected. So I formally, formally, the East Coast is closer to India. Okay. Moving on. Next Good question. Know. Good to know. It's that extra. It's that hundred kilometers that gets you. That last hundred kilometers of jet lag. It's the prices really go they skyrocket. Yeah. So, last but not least, Paul <laughs> Fraser Realty. He asking us to talk about age and attrition. I think we talked about that a lot near the start when we were talking about like open bid and all these online systems. But I think we should go over it again because I think it's beginning going to become a lot more relevant here. 
uh, as time continues, again, technology, the issues that we're having here with people like stealing properties, like a lot of things are, are continuing to lean that way. And I'd like to revisit it with some of the technology. And I'd love to talk to some of those people who had businesses that started when the market was booming and seeing how, now how they're faring. Uh, yeah, with these these with these bidding based systems. Well, look at uh, Zillow got crushed because they were trying to do estimates yeah. and, and make that, and they got absolutely smoked. Yeah. So that's an example. All these i buying companies in general um, that were huge in COVID, they're effectively out of business. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of turnover in the tech part of it because it turns out there's more nuance to this selling whole home. selling home thing than than some might think. It's a little more formal than you think. It's a little more. It's formal and informal when you think of it. <laughs> um, but that's enough for today yeah thanks for listening guys this was a longer episode leave your questions in the comments on youtube instagram wherever you're at and again thanks for listening thanks so much for watching the episode i hope you enjoyed it if you did press like don't forget to subscribe but also check us out on instagram and tiktok you can find all the links below thanks again for checking us out